Free to Be You and Me is a 1972 children's album and later television special created by actress Marlo Thomas, with appearances for many stars of the era. The album primarily focuses on gender roles, with songs teaching kids about how it's okay for boys to cry and play with dolls, and that girls can do anything. My guest today is podcaster extraordinaire Merlin Mann, and this episode is very different. It's quite long. I would define it more as inspired by the musical than strictly about the musical, and it is primarily a conversation about social equality, gender, and sexuality with a focus on children's media, with discussions along the way of homophobia, transphobia, and sex. If any of that is not your jam, I would understand, and I invite you back next week for a more typical episode. But for all of you who requested Merlin as a guest, well, you know what you were getting into, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Corner of the Sky. Good morning, Marilyn. Uh, hi, Quinn. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Are you excited to talk about my really weird non-musical. Yeah. So uh, what are we talking about today? <laughs> well, you kindly asked me to be on the show, and like most of the musicals that I have fandom and knowledge of has already been taken. Like you wouldn't want me for the Les Mis episode or the Rain episode because like I'm not deep enough catalog. But I was trying to think of something that's been with me for a long time that's kind of like a musical. So I brought to you a 1972 concept album, entertainment project, wokening initiative called Free to Be, ellipsis, You and Me. And it's a it started out like Jesus Christ Superstar. It started as an album. That Marlo Thomas, the actress, and I think in uh, I think in coordination with Ms. Magazine put out, and it's just a it's a it's a bunch of funny songs and skits that slip in um, a lot of information about um, what we might call today gender equity and the idea that boys and girls are not really that different and we shouldn't treat them so different. And uh, it's something I listened to compulsively when I was a little kid, and I'm <laughs> dropping this over forty five year old. <laughs> in my mind, eight track onto your doorstep to see what you think. So the first question I ask is always basically, why did you choose this? And But um, normally I mean that as like an in to talk about like your personal connection to it and all that stuff, which I also want to know. But I also like, serious question, why did you choose this? <laughs> uh, well, just like a tiny bit of background. I was raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, in a very conservative family, like politically conservative, culturally conservative family. My family is mostly from some combination of Kentucky and the British Isles, and we're very conservative. Um, so long story short, I don't know. Are you familiar with the concept of stuff like Columbia House? Do you know? Does that ring a bell? Like six CDs for a dollar, that kind of thing? Um, it rings a very faint bell. Well, there's been this racket running for 50 years, probably, where like you open up a magazine and like you, you, um, you send them a penny taped to a piece of paper, and then you get like eight records for free, or in our family's case, eight track tapes. But then you're like subscribed to this thing where you pick a genre of music, and they send you an eight track every month, and you automatically get charged for it. My family did that. Their <laughs> their channel was easy listening music. So we had a lot of like Montavani and very gentle, relaxing music. And I think secondarily it was musicals. So I grew up with just a lot of eight tracks of musicals that I would listen to compulsively. Like um, probably my favorite was Music Man, you know, Mary Poppins soundtrack, Hello Dolly, Mame, Sound of Music, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's a little bit of the background is like, you know, I'm, 
over 50, let's say. And so, like, I grew up at a time when you didn't have, like, a million records and you couldn't stream, obviously. You had these chunky, dumb 8-track tapes and you just listen to them over and over and over and you just, you know, memorize them. So that was my background in musicals in some ways and then, like, Disney movies. But, like, you know, it was Ohio. We didn't go to musicals. We didn't... But we had that music around. And I have... I've thought about this. I almost called my mom about this, but I have no idea how this particular eight track ended up in our house, but somehow free to be you and me arrived in the house. And I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to paint my family as being like backward, but it was not the kind of thing. I don't think that any of my family, anyone in my family would proactively buy as a way to entertain as well as educate in that particular way. We were not an equal rights you know, women's lib house in any way. Um, my mom, <laughs> my mom is a Second Amendment nut who carries a gun and loves Donald Trump. But uh, that's how I got started on it. And when you're a little kid, you listen to it over and over. I, I just loved how catchy the songs were. I love the little skits in between. Long before people like Wu Tang started doing that, you had skits between the songs. <laughs> yeah, and so like I, I just grew up with that, and I have a real kind of complicated relationship with it because I was a privileged little white boy and I found a lot of the material on there as tame as it was kind of uh, sort of threatening. Should I describe what the content is? Well, like, I doubt our listeners are going to be familiar with Free to Be You and Me. Yeah, let's let's start with, you want to give maybe a broad overview of it? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's mainly, I think it became a TV show a couple years later, but it definitely started as like... Uh, you know, a, a record. In our case, like I say, an eight-track tape. And it's just a bunch of uh, really catchy little tunes. A lot of them were written by this one dude who I had never heard of, but in my research for preparing for this, uh, there's this one guy who wrote like five of the best songs on here. And they picked up a song from, uh, what is it, Voices of East Harlem, this wonderful song, Brothers and Sisters. And But the thread that runs through all of it, I mean, tell you tell me, is there a better word for this? It just a plain, very basic idea of what I today would call gender equity of like, we should not force our kids, our little grownups to have to hew to any idea of gender, what we would later call gender roles that like, we shouldn't think that girls do the dishes and boys do the adventures that anybody could be anything. But it, it wasn't, it wasn't an overtly like political approach. It was really more humane as a way of saying like, you know, if William wants a doll, why can't he have a doll? And if Atalanta doesn't want to be married to this guy and wins the race, like, that's okay. The, the, so you, you gave it a listen. What did you think? <laughs> yeah, it's not anything that's like super wild political activism um, for – I think only like the most conservative people would – view this as like a hugely political stance although some people did and i do want to touch on that later but yeah. um for the for the time i mean for the for the time it i think it was the kind of thing that set some people off uh, yeah as being like what are you trying to especially let's be honest what are you trying to do to our little boys are you trying to turn our little boys into fruits yeah because there's there's songs on there that, are, that like you mentioned like it's okay for boys to play with dolls it's okay for boys to cry like yeah. things that there, those are somewhat controversial statements even today um, in some places, but it's also like these aren't like down with men, burn your bras and women take over the earth. It's like, hey, kids mm -hmm. kids should be allowed to be kids and be whatever they want, regardless of whether they're little boys or little girls. Yeah, yeah. And, and with yeah, I, I agree. And with the with the 40 plus years behind me listening to it, I feel like 
is very much a message to to girls to who will become young women. It's very much a message to them of, hey, look, you know, don't let people tell you what you're supposed to be because you're a girl. But I have to say, when I look back at this, I do feel like in some ways the target audience was me <laughs> as a typical white privileged male. I think this message is very heavily to little boys of saying, hey, knock it off. Like, stop doing this thing where you think, and you know, I, our ages are so different. There really was a time when systematically and culturally, I'm sorry, I sound so condescending, but at the time it was not at all unusual to split the groups into boys and girls and have them play completely different things. And the expectation was, really, really, really was, that like, no, the girls are not going to play uh, kickball. The girls are going to do things with a dollhouse. And I, I, it's, I mean, yeah, I, just, I do feel like maybe just because it's kind of stuck to my ribs for so many years, it really is very overtly a message to boys to say like, knock it off. Yes, of course. As the maybe the most famous song from it is "It's All Right to Cry" by Rosie Greer. I think that that's a song that some people might remember. He was a guy who was a football fa- player who was like a almost like a proto Terry Crews, where he was this guy who was famous as this like really good football player, but he also did like I think needlepoint. He was this oh. famous like kind of like he he was not going to have to prove his quote unquote masculinity to any, any anybody. Obviously, Alan Alda, a similar kind of character of the time, but you know, I it was it was something that delighted me, but also was very discomforting. Is an, is the only word I can think of? It, it was. It provoked me a little bit, and it took years and years and years before, like, ultimately the very simple message of these wonderful songs um, made sense to me as, like, a, something that on the face of it just makes sense. Like, why are we treating people differently? So on the note, you just said that it took you years and years to, like, understand this on the face of it. So what was your initial understanding of it? Well, the thing that, that today I, I can look at today and something I – it took me a long time to accept, let alone try to be reasonable about, is the idea of privilege. Is the idea that in, in what I increasingly understand in, in an intersectional way means um, are you aware of how much stuff you just get in life? And I think that uh, obviously that's mostly men and mostly white men, but it goes for a lot of people. It's a conversation that's getting more and more complex every day as we talk about intersectionality. But, but I, I was very unaware of that, and I was very mad about it. And like any white guy, I, even though I was seven, like I, I felt very threatened by that. I felt very threatened by an episode of The Brady Bunch where the girls beat the boys at something because it, 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 it was threatening to me. I'm not proud of that, but I was a little kid, and that's how I was raised. And I found that I found that kind of threatening. The the, the subtlety to this is, and p- part of what I think of as the wonder of this thing is, it is like a legitimately, I think, pretty entertaining children's album. It's an album for kids, um, but at the same time, there's something you can intellectually grok about this. Like if you said to even a little boy, "Do you think? Do you think people should be treated?" differently do you think just little kids little kids do you think they should be segmented and treated differently because of things like whether it's a boy or a girl or other do you because of like do they have money or not because of where their parents live and work do you think it's fair for those kids for the school for example to treat them differently i think if you ask most little kids even back then they would kind of mostly say yeah i guess that doesn't sound right uh flash forward to today and i feel very strongly most kids would go, no, that's BS. Like, you can't do that. You can't treat little kids differently based on these today increasingly seemingly arbitrary 
terms. But but I did find it threatening. But the reason I say it planted a seed is like as I got older and more people set me straight over time, you know, I, I remember being in a gender class in my third – I was in a, a really, really good gender studies class that was very provocative to me as a 20-year-old kid. And I, I remember getting in this – it wasn't even an argument. I got toasted by this woman who was an older, like, non-traditional age student. I was like, Wah. No wonder the ERA failed. I mean, do we really need an equal rights amendment? And she was this very, very small woman. And she looked up at me and looked me straight in the eyes and from memory recited the entire, very short, equal rights amendment. And she said, what part of that do you have a problem with? Well, I needed that. And I was like, well, I mean, it's already like the struggle's over. Like you guys are like you're in college. You know, women have jobs. Like, but I I felt like such a dick because, and I feel more like a dick today because I was like, you know, no, that needed to be said. That needed to be done. It's a shame that didn't pass because it's, it's saying the most basic thing, which is you're not allowed to treat and pay women differently because they're women. That's it's, it's not a complicated idea, and the the thirty. Plus, your awakening of that, that seed in its weird way was planted by things like this. And it was, it's, it's embarrassing for me to think about how controversial this felt to me because I was surrounded by signals and messages that told me that I was the king of everything. Um, even though I was not from a rich family, I had the most basic privilege, which was I was a white boy. And so um, it's taken a long time for me to now. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not a complete caveman, but I have. I'm trying. I'm. I'm trying to be better. And looking back at that, I feel a little bit ashamed, even though I was a little kid. But I think. I think the way that they present it is a way that's. Um, it, it's actually as, about as non-threatening as it can be. It could just be. It's just a way of saying like you're all just little people who are going to be grown-ups, and you can turn into whatever kind of person that you choose to be. And you mustn't let other people define who you are based on how they think you're different. Well, looking at when some of the research that I did on this and reading particularly about uh, Marla Thomas and like her inspiration for doing this, and one of the things she cites specifically is um, she she was inspired to make this because she couldn't find any good books for her niece. Um, and every book that she found was so incredibly stereotypical, including one that literally was supposedly about boys and girls. And it was like, boys are pilots and girls are stewardesses. And she was like, <laughs> what is this? And it, it's, for me, that's so funny because it's like that that messaging still exists, but it's so implicit. And it's so like when that, when that message becomes explicit, it is shamed in today's world and it should be. Um, whereas like at the time that was like, yep. Well, that's, that's the, I mean, my 75 75- sent word of the podcast that's that's hegemony hegemony is this extraordinary culture i'm not i'm not trying to mansplain hegemony, <laughs> but it's a powerful force like that's kind of what my thesis was about in college was just this idea that there are certain kinds of cultural forces that are like oxygen they're just like air they're ether you can't like kind of call them out but they have an ineffable quality of guiding whatever resistance there is back to what your culture thinks of as being normal it's difficult to identify. I'm, I'm looking here at a golden little, you know, the little golden books, those little kids' books mm-hmm. with the little spines. I don't know how my kid acquired this book because it is like from another century. But there's a book called Nurse Nancy. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> and it's about yeah, no, you got to just go Google Golden Book Nurse, and it's like you know, it's it comes with a band aid, like so you can be a nurse, and it's. It is hysterically bad because it really is. I think his, his I think his name's Dan is the doctor, 
right? Little Dan is the doctor and then Nancy is the nurse who helps him out and helps helps fix her dolls, you know, my hero. But that's the kind of stuff – and I have to say that it feels very different today. But at the time, that's just what – that's what it felt like. It, this Something like this did feel um, very radical. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about her niece, but I, I, I totally believe it. I was talking with my daughter, who's 11, and my wife today about doing this show and like how I was, of course, very nervous because I hate every guest appearance I do. I sound like a dingus. And I was just I was talking about like, you know – She's, it was just interesting to talk about, like, you know, she's a 50-year-old woman who, you know, went to good liberal arts schools but grew up in Rhode Island. And she was just talking about, for example, she's an athlete and was talking about how her entire life, how this, the weird kind of judgment that she gets about doing trail running, something as innocuous as doing trail running. Like her, her whole life, like up until today, people are still like, oh, do you really want to do that? Like, should, should she be out there alone? Like, do you have a contingency plan? Mm-hmm. Do you have like a rape whistle and all this kind of stuff? And it's like, she's like, I've never, I've never worried about that. Like, I've never let that get to me. And like, she's still like, she's running a half marathon this weekend. And I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just wild to, to, to see and meet people who have this sort of private journey that's not obvious to everybody else. And then to get them to talk about it is always fascinating to me. Yeah, that's kind of the, one of the big themes of life is like no matter what, when you ask, start a- asking somebody questions about this kinds of thing, everyone's going to have a story. Well, it helps to ask. We just – another podcast that you brought up on the line, we just had a live show um, a week or two ago. And in the front row is this guy that I've been – I mean we're not tight, but like we see each other around. And he's clearly – well, she is clearly transitioning. And I was like – I went up I went up and hugged her and I was like, uh, hey – you got something going on. What's we got? What's happening, man? This is great, you know. <laughs> but it's like that's it's happening now. It's 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 happening. People are with little kind of like baby steps becoming the person that they've always thought that they are. And it's like I don't know how you don't find that intoxicating. The idea of somebody getting to be their inside person increasingly more on the outside, whether that's physically with their body or like with their relationship with the world and how they decide the world is going to treat them now. And it's, I don't know. I don't know how you, I don't know how you see that and don't find that a little bit buoyant. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's exactly the right reaction is like to be happy for other people's happiness. And to not see it as a threat. It doesn't mean, you know, it's like we went through this a few years ago with, um, the you know the idea, you know, gay people can't get married they can have this union so they can like technically be this thing and then like all those people coming i i don't want to just you know beat up or throw beanbags but all those people come out of the woodwork to go like okay well now my marriage to my wife is being endangered <laughs> by this i remember about a decade ago going to visit my mom who'd had surgery we go out to dinner with her friend and i had a probably 20 minute conversation. This is a woman who was one of my favorite people, like through my middle youth. And we had about a 20 minute conversation about whether civil unions meant people would soon be able to marry their dogs. Oh my God. And I, and I said, well, um, I mean, I don't want to, uh, you know, throw a blanket on this for you, but like dogs aren't people. They don't have a legal right to get married. They don't have the agency. <laughs> and she said, well, I don't know. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? You know, it's we. This is really uncharted territory. If we let people start marrying people that aren't the opposite sex, like where does it end? You, you know, like you marry your dog, you get to marry your car. And I was like, 
you know, you're you're 60. Like how 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 have you interrogated this and gotten to the point that you're worried about dog marriage? Like have you really thought that through? <laughs> she was serious. She was really. It was that foreign to her that two ladies would want to get married that it might as well be like like <laughs> shacking up with a chihuahua. Oh my god. Well, this is this goes back to what you were talking about earlier with this kind of thing. It's 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 hegemony and it's this what is considered like standard and normal in society. And it, like to mm-hmm. use an example from sort of my own childhood and like I was raised like I have um, gay relatives who I've always been close to. And so like I but like as a child, it was like gay marriage is illegal. And I was like, OK, that doesn't seem right. But like that's the way the world is and eventually it'll change but you know okay um and then by the time i was like like 16 17 and like a, a more of like a functioning adult and able to think about it and also like living in a different world than i had been 10 years ago when i first like understood this concept i was like what the hell i was like how yeah. that's not legal what is happening because you you knew you knew people cuz you personally knew and presumably loved People who are in that situation, you did. I'm, I'm interpolating here, but like you didn't see that as a foreign concept, right? Mm-hmm. It was like it was. It, it wasn't like can gay people get married? It's more like can like can cousin Pat get married? Mm-hmm. And it's like why would I deny that person not only the desire for what they want, the potential joys and foibles of that, but like why would I systematically support something? that says even just this one person. And this is a classic white guy thing to do, as John Syracuse has informed me, to go like, oh, what, no, I have a daughter, so like now I have authority <laughs> to speak on this. But I do think there is a case to be made for exposure to people who are not like you. There's a, a terrible thing that's riven the nation for the last few months, really for the last two years, let's say, which is this idea of like building a border wall with Mexico. And the stats very clearly show that people who want a border wall with Mexico don't live anywhere in New Mexico. It's people in like... Very, very, very conservative people very far away from where that would actually be happening who want that because they have this they have this fear and concern and anxiety and their own cultural hegemony about how that should be. It's not the people who live near the border that want that. I think it's it's not dissimilar to say like I just think that as a class, these uh, 30 million Americans shouldn't have access to the same thing that everybody else has or however many. It's another part of the privilege is just having this like certainty about like – what everybody else needs to be doing based on who I am. And anyway, Marla Thomas, uh, it's, it's a good record. <laughs> Did you like any of the songs? Go the long way around. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I was almost, I started listening to this. I was kind of surprised that I have never heard of this before, but I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think like as a young adult who is like at this point in my life where I very much appreciate good children's content because I can recognize that like, wow, this is really good for kids. Um, And I enjoyed it on that level. I especially liked some of the skits, like the Mm -hmm. boy meets girl is genuinely (laughs) a very good sketch. (laughs) Look at me. I'm just born. I'm a baby. (laughs) You are bald. bald, bald, bald. You're bald as ping pong. (laughs) I'm a little nervous. I don't know if I'm a boy or a girl yet. Oh, that is important. I think most people know. Well, I've never been anything before. Let's see. Let me take a little look around here. Hmm. Cute feet. Small. Dainty. Yep. I'm a girl. That's it. It's girl time. What do you think I am? You. Oh, that's easy. You're a boy. Gee, I don't feel like a boy. That's because you can't see yourself. Why? What do I look like? Bald. 
You're bald, fella. Bald, bald, bald. You're bald as a ping pong ball. So, so in this little, it's the second track of the album, and it's just this mm-hmm. little skit with Mel Brooks. Um, and then uh, Marla Thomas is the girl. Yeah, just b- b- newborn babies. Yeah, two newborn babies are trying to decide if they're boys or girls. Yeah, and Mel Brooks immediately decides that uh, he's a girl <laughs> because of these. Like, he just starts pulling reasons out of nowhere it's really cute, funny cute feet, cute feet small hands i'm a girl it's girl time <laughs> i want to be a cocktail waitress i'm definitely a girl i'm scared of <laughs> snakes <laughs> uh-huh and but like it's also it's wonderfully I mean, probably not ironic because i think they're making a, a very big point after the kind of like the uh the the jingle jangle folky opening of the free to be you and me song the first skit is um is about the, the madness of gender role assignation for somebody who's just been born, <laughs> you know? And you see this, like you see people who like put a pink bow on their kid's head, like don't call white. All babies kind of look like boys. They look like all old accountants, you know? Babies look like potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They look like little, little poopy thumbs. Yeah. Yeah. So like, but you've got to get that stuff going early. Mm-hmm. Um, I, some of the songs are definitely better than others. I, I I just have to say, like, I mean, having listened to that a million times, the songs are still in my my head. You know, um, you know, bang, uh, tall, gang, sometimes they make things out of chairs. Like, there's all these songs that still stick in my head, and uh, and then and I'm listening to it again, prepping for this with a very different uh, taste in music. I thought like that, like I said, that brothers and sisters song. I think it's Voices of East Harlem. That's actually a legit, really good, funky R&B song, like with, with a great bass line. Sisters and brothers, brothers and sisters, ain't we everyone? And, um, and yeah, sisters. yeah, so, I mean, they're, they're, they're catchy. And, and you're, you know what, you're right, though. I mean, so much of, at the time that I was coming up, when stuff like that came out, like, so much of, like, what was available in children's entertainment was very... This got worse in the 80s, of course. But it was very, like, kind of product-based and very uh, – certainly very gendered as long as we're talking about it. But also just very pro- product-based, whether that is, okay, these Hot Wheels. There's now a TV show about Hot Wheels, so we're selling these Hot Wheels. It could be about the technology behind it. Like I had a thing called Show & Tell, which was a little – this very simple little record player that had not a video screen but basically a backlit, backlit screen where you could put like a film strip in it. You know, things like, you know, uh, Viewmaster Reels. But there was always, there was like this um, productization of mm-hmm. entertainment for little kids. And it was it was unusual and worth calling out when you come across something that was more indie like this. Like this didn't have an attachment to a brand. It had attachments to the people who were featured in it. But it, it wasn't productized in the same way so much of kids entertainment was at the time, like a Disney record or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a period of time where every single kid show was also an action figure line. It was a huge deal. I learned about this during my thesis. It was a huge deal in, I think, 1968 when I want to say the FTC said, okay, we've, we've had it. There's several things that happened, I believe, in the late 60s involving TV. One of the things was the FTC, in reacting to the show called Hot Wheels, they were like, you cannot – listen, guys, all right, now we're going to have to say something. You cannot have a TV show that's about a toy that people can buy. And so for a long time, there were certain lines that had to be towed about, like, how things got productized. And, you know, I think that was always sort of loosely um, 
enforced, but I think that's also around the time, again, we're talking now about the time of like Sesame Street and Electric Company later on coming out where I think there were more and more requirements for like, you've got to show community content. There were more and more guidelines about oh, basically a haze code for children about like what was allowed to be on TV. But then, I mean, our old pal Ronald Reagan uh, knocked a lot of that stuff down. His administration killed a lot of that stuff in the early 80s. And pretty soon it was all strawberry shortcake and cabbage patch kids. And it became okay for Saturday morning TV to basically become a, like a four hour long infomercial. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is, it is unusual. And, you know, and to this day, like, it sounds like you want to, you know, if you're the kind of person who wants to buy cool stuff for the kids in your life, you still do have to kind of search around a little bit. Now there's whole industries around being indie. There's like the entire Melissa and Doug line of toys. <laughs> like, well, you can go buy this $80 wooden toy and be like the cool aunt or whatever. But <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- this record has a very PBS vibe. Yes. Um, which is, I, I mean, PBS is incredible and such a gift to the world. Um, yes. and it, 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 ha- it feels very similar to me and especially, so I, I watched a bunch of the videos. A lot of them are available on YouTube and just to- <laughs> totally destroyed my YouTube recommendations. Um, because oh, no. now it thinks I'm a child, but that's fine. I did that with roller coaster videos. I had a couple nights where I watched roller coaster videos, and now it's all roller coasters. It's the worst. At least it's not Nazis, right? <laughs> yeah, could be worse. There, there is a, there is actually a Sesame Street connection though. Through the, I'm looking up now the guy who wrote um, several of the songs for this. So, a guy named Stephen J. Lawrence. He wrote "Free to Be You and Me." He wrote uh, all that wonderful, you know, when we grow up. You know, oh, when yeah. I grow up, will I be a lady? Um, he wrote. He wrote "Sisters and Brothers." He wrote, he wrote like five or six of the songs, and it uh, turns out he is a guy who wrote over 300 songs for Sesame Street. That makes so much sense. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yep, that totally tracks. Wow. That's the kind of, that, this is what really gets me about this album, is I feel like there are so many people in the world who have a similar kind of experience that Marlo Thomas did, in that they go to seek out media for themselves or for a child in their life and then they don't they find what they find is insufficient and uh, i think that like especially today more and more people are making media um that reflects what they want to see in the world and it's coming from all these different places and so it's a lot more varied than it used to be but she was in such a good position for this because she was in the entertainment mm-hmm. industry and knew all these people and so she not only like could make a children's book and get it published she could make an entire album she could make a tv special and and she had the the power for like this amount of influence and she wielded it yeah yeah that's 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 a it's a really it's a really good point like how you know in every age there are people who try to use their their platform um for something that they think is a good idea. It's so nice to see that happen. And the cast of this is so wild. I mean, so th- there was a TV version of this that came a couple years later that I remember seeing probably once. But So I do remember the babies being like Muppet-style puppets. I do remember that. But that was really like almost tertiary to the album. But you've got, you know, again, Alan Alda, Rosie Greer famously, um, Jack Cassidy. He does that creepy song, Girl Land. Oh, it's so creepy. Oh yeah, and <laughs> and um, oh, what's the guy's name? The 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 gay guy who did a couple of the things on here. What is his name? I was just reading about him. Billy DeWolf, who is this closeted actor um, who did. He, he's the guy who kind of talks like this. He's the very kind mm-hmm. of officious guy. He uh, he did some stuff on here. Yeah, but um, I mean Diana Ross, Harry Belafonte. <laughs> like there was there was a star-studded cast here. Shel Silverstein um, yeah. wrote the uh, yeah 
That's so great. Yeah, so so I love that. I, st- I listened to that again. I'm like, oh, man. So it's written by um, Phil- Shel Silverstein, a uh, great kids author, and done by Tom Smothers, one of the Smothers brothers. And it's this very short song, but it's so it's so catchy. I don't know if you want to drop in some audio from that, but that's, that's the one. That Agatha Fry, she made a pie, and Christopher John helped bake it. Mm-hmm. Great little, like, finger-pick guitar part. Man, Shel Silverstein is eternal. I loved him as a kid, and I'm sure kids today are still growing up and, and discovering him. He's wonderful. He did the Sidewalk book. Mm-hmm. What was his famous book? Yeah, Sidewalk at the like the end of the what Sidewalk or something. Yeah, right, right, right. So. Yeah. Yeah, there used to be room for a certain kind of character in American culture that you don't see so much now for a variety of reasons. But people like Shel Silverstein, people like Roald Dahl, people like um, little – I mean, not strictly for kids – but like uh, Edward Gorey, the guy who did like the Gashley Crumb Tinies and stuff like that, the guy who he think he was like a New Yorker cartoonist, but he did these Adams Family style, like very dark humor things that kind of looked like they were for kids. They were very gothic looking. Mm-hmm. He did the um, he did the credits for Mystery, like those creepy looking on PBS. Like, but he has this. If you Google um, Gorey G O R E Y, you'll you'll probably instantly recognize it. There used to be so much like an, an interesting kind of character, this sort of arch. Roald Dahl, I guess, being a great example, where like very kind of arch, dark character, maybe along the lines of Daniel Handler today, you know, like Lemony Snicket. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a time when you would have this sort of person who would be write, you know, writing or drawing for the New Yorker and doing things for plays and doing stuff in like, I don't know, it seems like it was, this was actually a pretty wonderful time for that sort of uh, multimedia character. Yeah, that, that, those are the kind of people that like you knew the one book from them and then you go and read their Wikipedia page and they've done 10,000 things that you've heard of. You never knew. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's also yeah, golden age. Everybody would see people on game shows or like you know talk shows, and there would be these bon vivants that like just inhabited my life. Like I knew Tony Randall from The Odd Couple, but I also really knew him from you know just being on every talk show all the time. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I don't know how this thing has aged. I think you could still give this. My kid did not love it, but that's not unusual. When I tried to ply her with this when she was a little younger, it's a little young for her now, but she did remember it. She did remember having listened to it in the past, but you know. It didn't grab her like Hamilton or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask about that if you had tried to, to sneak this into her life. Yeah. Yeah, I'm that, I'm that guy. Um, my wife and I are both that guy. We do try to sneak in, uh, you know, like an ongoing <laughs> – if you listen to the Primary Incomparable podcast, whenever they talk about kids' movies, you know, we get back to that famous – John Syracuse quote, which is, you know, kids have terrible taste, (laughs) (laughs) where you kind of can't help but like try to be a little bit of um, what you you try to guide kids towards stuff that you know is good. Like, you know, let's watch Kiki. Let's watch Totoro. Like, let's, you know, maybe not watch this third GoBots cartoon (laughs) or whatever. But um, but they you um, there's lots of tricks for how you can do that. I've recently recently kind of gotten my daughter into churches by not listening to it overtly when she's in the room so she's picked it up now and now she's kind of into churches I, that's how i got her into the baths at first she hated the baths mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite bands right now and like but now like when we go to basketball like she's always playing the baths but you know i you, you gotta let this is if let's go back to this free to be you and me like you know how do we get the hell out of the way of people becoming who they need to become and it's the one of the eternal struggles of being a stupid parent is like how, how do you know when to intervene and how do you know the vast majority more of the time that you just need to shut up and be available? And it, that's for somebody with a brain that races a lot. It's hard to be somebody who just gets out of the way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think my parents got very lucky in this regard in that 
like we as a family unit have the very similar tastes and i grew up on like 80s rock music and <laughs> musicals and just loved really? loved all of it yeah oh yeah we were a, like a bon jovi household uh, oh wow early bon jovi <laughs> Uh, I no, mean, you're so young. You're probably like living on a prayer era. Yeah, Bon Jovi. <laughs> because my, my when my mom was a teenager, I mean, my mom still loves Bon Jovi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like that. I was, think that was I think like, Runaway is Runaway, and she don't know me are legitimately extremely good pop songs. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Runaway is okay. great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out on the street where girls talk about their social life. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know what my mom would, my mom in particular would have done um, if her children didn't like musical theater. She would have just been sad all the time, I guess. But luckily, uh, we all took what, to it very strongly. Well, I think you know, at certain different ages, this is just a wild reckon, but I think, you know, kids' brains can be pretty, pretty pliant as long as they haven't put up a big wall that like, Oh, okay. This is going to be like the Brussels sprouts of musical exposure. Like eh, 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 pork call us down, like get away. I don't want to be involved in this. But like for me, a lot of it was, was sheer repetition in some ways out of, out of necessity. But like, yeah, it's funny. Like for years we've been listening to the Beatles because I like the Beatles. So when I pick her up at school, back in like preschool, we would listen to the white album mm-hmm. And then, like, the oddest thing happened. And there's, the Beatles have always been around. And she'll come in. And I'll be watching one of my many YouTube videos about the Beatles that I watch or listening to Revolver. And, like, the other no, – now it's been a month or two. But, like, I, I went in and she was laying on her loft bed doing Scratch, like, basic computer programming, and listening to the White Album. And I was like, that's – what? It's one of those, like slap in the face moments where you're like, how did I get here? How do I have an 11 year old kid who's, <laughs> who's got a Chromebook listening to the white album? <laughs> like, I think I got off at the wrong stop. Like, how old am I? But what, what, what other stuff, what other stuff did you listen to in the eighties? My parents played us this, this music of like my mom's favorites were Bon Jovi and John Denver. Um, and also just like a lot of fun 80s hair bands were played mm-hmm. um and then so i got really and i also got really into like sticks and billy joel from them what? and that kind of thing sticks? yeah 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 yeah. oh i love, love sticks, sticks. <laughs> when i was like i don't know how old i was maybe i was like 13 or so i went through a massive sticks phase sticks was one of those bands though like that was kind of between they were they were hard rock mostly until Dennis DeYoung had them doing so many ballads. But they mm-hmm. they were they were mostly like a hard rock band. Even if you look like Crystal Ball or um, you know so many of those. But they're so freaking catchy. They're they're kind of hard rock songs, but they're almost like show tunes. I mean, eventually they were you know stuff like uh, Worst of, or Best of Times and Mr. Roboto and all that. They were basically trying to do musicals. It's so catchy. But, you know, but it's kind of proggy. There was a point where they were like closer to Rush than Bon Jovi. You know what I mean? Where they were kind of kind of mm-hmm. proggy. But I'm so delighted that you like Sticks. That's so exciting. Yeah. I mean, we did like my parents ha- had a huge CD collection. I think they still do. They're, they're at this point actually paring it down <laughs> in 2019. Um, but and we so we grew up with those CDs and it was it was Sticks and Billy Joe and Queen's Greatest Hits and um, and then just like t- a lot of. 80s pop one hit wonder CDs and that kind of thing wow. um, and that's that's what we listen to but what I what I realized is that I have a, these experiences of trying to get people to ex- experience media not from coming from my parents because they have very similar taste to us and they have very good taste and know us but then I realized that I do this to my sister 
constantly. I am always trying to get my sister into the things I'm into and she never wants to listen to me. It took me years to get this girl to read Harry Potter. She finally did. She's She got very into it years after I got out of it. And I was wow. very annoyed at her. Um, but like the most recent example of this is we'll be in the car together and I'll be like, time to listen to the Adventure Zone. And she'll be like, please stop. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my cool baby and I listened uh, to some of that too. That's um, uh, yeah, my cool baby listens to more bad stuff. I showed her some of the John Mulaney live show because I'm terrible, and he's my favorite comic. We've listened to <laughs> like she. Um, we both love um, Angus <laughs> from the Adventure Zone. We have all these things. Yeah. And we watch the YouTube videos of those. Not, you know, that's it's funny that that makes me think of something though. Is like in addition to all the stuff of like, okay, your parents had the CDs. My parents had the eight tracks. I had mostly LPs and really mostly cassettes before I got a CD player in the late eighties. But um, it is. I don't know. It's so, us old guys always thought, wow, when the internet gets big and there's all these things, like imagining a world with streaming. You, somebody from my point of view who was economically constrained to only having so many $8.69 albums in their life, I always imagine this future where you'd just be constantly getting way into like a new band and like listening to everything – everything they ever put out. I mean, do, do you think that still happens today? I mean, with Spotify, I feel like everything goes by so fast. I'll like save it, like grab this album or whatever, but I'll, I'll flip through my recommendations or recent discoveries or what's, whatever the you know, stuff like that is. Do you think people still, do people still get into music, Quinn? I think that, and I mean, this might be a bias from, but just like speaking from anecdotal experience, I think very much yes. And that like, I, I am more into music now than I ever have been because of Spotify mm -hmm. and Spotify Discover and because I listen to my Spotify Discover playlist every week and that will often lead me to a new cast album or a new artist that I like and then um, I mean, because I'm a musical theater person, this happens especially with cast albums where I'll find a song or two I like and I'm like, allow me to listen to this on repeat for the next two weeks of my life. <laughs> musical stuff in general is interesting in that way because <clears throat> my, my education about it is so incomplete. I mean, there's some things I can tell you. I, I can tell you. I like, I, I'm such a normie. I mean, I really like Hamilton. I really like Evan Hansen. There's stuff like that. But, but it's also interesting because when you include the world of YouTube – Everything gets really big. I agree with you. I think going through, like, my, my daily mixes are such a mess. How many of these do I have? <clears throat> my first daily mix is just like, you know how they just, like, keep giving you the stuff you already listen to? It's just all Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen. Mm -hmm. Some of it is, like, 80s uh, pop and mm -hmm. punk. Some of it's, like, um, you know, G Richard Thompson-style folk. But it's so exciting, though, to go, like, oh, like, let's take Adina Menzel. Like, uh, okay, well, we know her from Frozen. Like, from when my kid was little, we know her from Frozen. And then, oh my God, we realized, like, oh, she was, she was in Rent. And like, but she was also in Wicked, and now we're into Wicked. Mm -hmm. But then you pivot, you can also pivot on performances, where you get to, like, go, oh, well, this person was in that. You know what I'm saying, though? Like, it's so easy to follow your nose in a million directions. And then you find a playlist somebody made yeah. of, like, uh, all, like, I have one of all Patter songs. Like all like, you know, no, 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 I'm not getting married, not getting married today. Those kinds of things where you'll come across a list of those things. Yeah. and then, But it just keeps blooming and blooming and blooming as long as you follow your nose. It's like it's such an exciting time to find stuff you're pretty sure you're going to like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I um, I didn't start this show to get musical recommendations, but it really worked out that way. And like I will tell anyone that one of my all time favorite musicals is Come From Away, um, which is an extraordinary show. And I discovered it because someone wanted to come on the show and talk about it. And I was like, OK. Is that the post 9-11 mm -hmm. Canada? 
Okay. Yeah. All right. Is that on? Is that on Spotify? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, highly, highly recommend it. This is this is just a thing I was thinking about the other day because my two favorite musicals are Come From Away and Rent, and people will tell me like they don't like Rent or they they, they see <laughs> these issues in it and like these are the problems with Rent, and I'm like, yep, you're right. Like, yeah, yeah. And then people are like, I don't like Come From Way. And I'm like, how and why? <laughs> you know, so once it's like me and the Smiths where I'm like, if you like the Smiths, I understand. They're super weird. But then you're sort of like, how do you not like the Beths? Like, how do you not like the Beatles? <laughs> like, as Bob Pollard from Guided by Voices says, like, not liking the Beatles, that's like not liking air. Like, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's funny like that. But our, our tastes, sometimes it takes listening to something three times for it to embed. I mean, I had this whole journey with Hamilton like that where like, I won't won't go into it, but I had this very complex journey with Hamilton of like starting with just a few songs and going through and not listening to the second act for months and months and months until it had sort of gelled with me. But then like, then before I realized that I had this horrible nightmarish experience of every morning I woke up with with the Schuyler sisters in my head, which sounds fun. Which sounds fun, but it's it's like being in a, like a funhouse mirrors to know that every morning you're going to wake up and go, and Peggy. And it's like, oh, God, can I can I oh get God. eternal sunshine? Like, can I at least get this out of my mind before 10 in the morning? But that's what they do. They stick to you. Songs like that Not Getting Married song. You just These songs will just embed themselves in your head. But that's another example where, like, I didn't know that much about Stephen Sondheim. But, like, I'll go and I discover on YouTube, you've probably seen this. There's this if you like Sondheim, there's this wonderful series from probably the early 80s of him doing these sessions with, I think, mostly amateur performers where he personally coaches them on how to sing his songs. Mm. It's so freaking good. Like, really, how to really sing Send in the Clowns. He's very, very specific about it. But then I hear, I'll watch that, and then I learn about this, and now I'm off to Sweeney Todd. And then from, you know what I mean? It's like, it's it's so exciting. It's so exhilarating in a way that you probably couldn't do that as much with soundtracks. You're going to find a lot of Hans Zimmer. But like, you know, <laughs> with musicals, there's so many different directions because you've got the performer, you've got mm-hmm. the play. Um, you've got the, even like the producer, like think about, you know, all the kinds of things that, um, the the guy from company did. I think it's exciting. It's one of the few places where you can still like be pretty assured that there will be stuff you definitely hate, but stuff you absolutely will love. And it's really just a few clicks away. It's so exciting to me. I had a couple more things I wanted to touch on with this and sort of on the idea of like, like it's progressiveness by modern day standards. And I, I have two interesting things that I noted about this is one, there are several things in this album that like by modern day sort of liberal standards wouldn't be considered that liberal, let's say. It's like this the 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 sketch of Boy Meets Girl, it's like the the conclusion is that basically they they get the change of their diapers and they're like, Oh, I am a boy. And it's like, oh, yeah. well, that's not actually like our understanding of gender anymore. And like, if that could quite possibly be a girl. And, and but so I find that note interesting and that, that kind of thing. And also the, the idea that like, it's okay that Billy wants to play with a doll because he'll be a father someday. And it's like, oh, yeah. well, maybe Billy just likes dolls and that's fine. Um, and so oh, it's, you're really, that's real. That's a really good note. Yeah. God, that's so true. Yeah. I think especially in our, our, our understanding of gender um, and that, like how that is just not a p- part of this at all. That kind of jumped out to me. Like that would not be how that is done um, in the modern day version of this. Totally true. The o- Overton window was nowhere near there for that. Th- that was, <laughs> I've had beloved family members who come and visit me here 
in uh, San Francisco, and they see people of the same gender kissing on the street, and it really puts them off their beer. But the only thing more more upsetting to them than homosexuals is bisexuals, for example, because I think when your paradigm is boys and girls, you see a boy who likes a boy, and you're like, oh, I see. They're just backwards people. They're mm-hmm. like they're confused people. This isn't my estimation of how they think the way they do. But the idea that there could be a girl, a lady, who is attracted to people of both genders, right? And, you know, for a long time we say, oh, yeah, well, you know, everybody, everybody's a little gay for a while in college and that's just an experiment or whatever. But, but the truth is, well, let me really blow your gourd. What if that person – what if you thought about it in a different way? What if you thought about it in terms of this is a person who finds themselves, whatever, sexually, romantically attracted to a certain kind of person? And what if the gender on their birth certificate isn't the top thing? And that, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. f- for you, you, you get this. But I'm saying, when I say that to one of my, my older relatives, like, that's, that's a monkey balls thing to say. Where you, it's like it, saying to somebody, like, it's, it's a paradigmatic change to say, like, no, I'm just attracted to certain kinds of people. And what their gender is may not be the very first thing. Right? right? And then yeah. let's take that a step further to, like, I don't, I'm, st- I'm still not f- fully clued in by the precise definition of pansexual. But, but one... One understanding of pansexual that's coming around for me, I feel like, is that it's not just that you're attracted to men. It's not just that you're attracted to women. It's that you could be attracted to somebody who has a certain gender and sexual identification that most people would call transgender. Like, that's a, that's a crazy, interesting idea. Like, Janelle Monet might get a crush on you because you're a, a, a woman who was gendered as a guy at birth who's attracted to women and wait a minute suddenly the network connections for how we talk about this stuff get impossibly complicated right i mean i I could be way off on this but i i think it's time to stipulate that a lot of what attracts people to other people is not necessarily what's in their swimsuit area right off the bat there could be other stuff about it right and like how you present and like who they're attracted to and this matrix of connections is so impossibly complicated i give free to be you and me a little bit of a pass in 72 terms because like that's a big pandora's box but but i'm glad you said it i'm glad i mean and now i mean now we can have an interrogation of those ideas that's less insane and about lynchings and running people out of town so i'm a bisexual woman like i identify as bisexual and then i just wanted to sort of how i experience it and like how it's sort of like the mainstream idea of it now is as bi is defined as like attraction to my gender and other genders and that's mm-hmm. where like the bi comes in because we were because i think people were collectively like well we don't want to subscribe to the gender binary but there's a lot of like history and attachment to this term and so that is why it's still like used but um and then pansexual is more of the idea of and this is, I'm not like the world's expert at anything, but this is my understanding of it. No, I'll take anything I can get. I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. So I think my, from my experience of talking to people and, but, um, and the thing is like, I think bisexual and pansexual, some people use them interchangeably and I can identify with both. And so, and people have different ideas of what the difference between them is. But my basic understanding of it is like for bisexual people, um, attraction to all genders, but like the gender matters and the, att- the attraction to different people of different genders is different whereas with pansexual people it's like attraction regardless of gender and that the like basically like gender is not even a factor in like how that experience is for them it's 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 because 
it's so simple, not easy. It's so simple when you're talking about like, okay, there is a person who is gendered as a man that is attracted to a person who is gendered as a man. I just feel like it gets complicated really fast. And but the thing that it seems to come down to as a viewer from the outside is that like, um, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to describe this relationship without having a a stake in the ground about whose position we're talking about in some ways. So like when you describe yourself and you say like who you're attracted to, does that also necessarily encompass who the people you're attracted to are attracted to? Because it isn't like you say to somebody, uh, what food do you eat? And you go like, oh, uh, I eat pretty much all kinds of stuff. You mean like, am I a vegetarian? Like, no, no, no. I mean like, what do you eat? Like, well, I eat all kinds of stuff. Like, I may have a favorite or I may be in the mood, but I eat a lot of different things. You know what I mean? Like, we would never think it's weird that somebody has salad and sushi in their life. Mm -hmm. But, like, in this case, it gets more complicated because does the sushi want to be eaten? (laughs) Like, (laughs) right? In the sense of, like, we tend to define this according to, like, here's what I am attracted to. I'm attracted to people like this and like that. They got this thing. They got that thing. They do these things. To me, I do these things to them. It seems very, very complicated to describe that kind of relationship without at least having the stake in the ground of like, okay, we're going to talk what my attraction is to these people. Because it's not always the same thing, is it? I mean, that's, that, that's what I got from the pansexual is that like, I don't know if it's true, but like, listen a little bit like to hearing Janelle Monet kind of bringing this up lately. It at least opened my eyes to the idea that like, this is so much less simple or happily consistent for people who don't really care about it as to go like, well, this person's attracted to that person and that person's attracted to this person and that's their pairing that like, once you get beyond the, like I'm attracted to this one kind of person with this one way and this one thing, this right. It seems like it necessarily, it's only complicated to people who struggle to understand it for people who do understand it. It's not a problem. They're just doing what they do. Right. But like, give me your, give me your breakdown on bi versus pan again. So my my best understanding of it um, is that honestly, like some of the differences are a little arbitrary, and sometimes it's just people what term they want to use to describe themselves based on whatever personal reasons. Um, but that like the the most definable difference is that for bi people, they are attracted to people of all genders, but the gender of the person they're attracted to influences that attraction. Oh, Whereas with like pansexual a, people, it's okay. like their attraction, it's like a very individual person basis. Like there's no gender doesn't even come in a factor. One thing that occurs to me is that um, historically for men, men or cis men or women, it's, it's never been considered unusual to say that one has a type. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so it wouldn't be weird, like for a guy to say, like, I like slender blondes or I like zoftig brunettes or whatever. And that that doesn't change the way that they are um, that they would describe their sexual attraction. Like that's because it's all that same binary in some ways. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I don't know this is making sense, but yeah. in the way that you but like the the kind of person who's interested in same sex relationships, you might be interested in this type of person, but not so much that type of person. Maybe somebody who's more femme versus, as we say, butch, for example, mm-hmm. like that, that that's part of the equation or could could be that, that. But is that the kind of distinction that you, we could be talking about? Like I'm attracted to like very femme uh, presenting women. And I'm very attracted to like, you know, maybe this different kind of thing in a man. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, kind of. Like this is a joke that I've made on (laughs) that I like to make. But I I, I, like to actually to bring this back to Rent Live um, as I was talking, I was like, um, 
Vanessa Hudgens and Jordan Fisher in this are really good representations of the men and women I'm attracted to. Because, like, Jordan mm-hmm. Fisher is, like, this sweetheart and charming and has a great is smile. Is he the main guy? He's, he's the, the main, main guy. guy. He's the main guy. I love him. And the Vanessa Hudgens who played Marine, I was like, yeah. and I'm attracted to her because she looks like she could kill me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She's very assertive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get that. I get that. Yeah. This, this is funny, though, because I was I was talking to a very good friend of mine um, who's a bisexual man, and he was like, I think I can honestly say that my type is women because he's like, I'm attracted to like people of all genders, but I prefer to date women. So I think that means that my type is women. And I was like, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. All right. But, it, you know, I don't know. The food, the, the food analogy seems silly, I guess, but like... There's no, there's no um, societal, generally speaking, there's some societal admonishment about like eating too much meat and stuff like that. But we don't judge people deeply depending on their preferences in, the, in many of the things that they consume. It's just interesting that like there's this need sometimes for people – maybe it's important to one, to, to oneself to be very um, – it could be – I can imagine it being very important to somebody for a variety of reasons to be very out and proud about whatever their particular – uh, I don't know, preference predilection type is, but like, it's, 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 I feel like I suffer under the same thing, which is like, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to do all this math in my head when ultimately it's like, I don't know if those labels on the face of it help anybody that doesn't want to be changed by that label. Like, shouldn't they be able to just do what their thing is without having to like go in this particular line today? <laughs> like, do mm-hmm. I, do I have to like, you know, what's the lower third for my life today? Like, how are you going to define me as somebody from the outside? Well, I think of me as me. Like, back to Marlo Thomas, I guess. You know what I mean, though? Like, uh, there are certain aspects of life where we've gotten to the point where we don't need somebody to say, hell. Like, you could say, look at John Gruber. John Gruber likes the New York Yankees because he's a monster. And he likes the Dallas Cowboys because he's a monster. I mean, the thing is, though, he is a Yankees fan, but that doesn't not make him a Cowboys fan. And that's such an obviously simple thing. Like, I really like – I like steak, but I also like Brussels sprouts. That's not confusing to people. Mm-hmm. But, like, once we start getting into any level of granularity about this stuff, it, bec- it starts seeming impossibly complicated that we want people to define it in a way that's sensible to all of this when, like, I don't know. I don't know. It just it's, – it's, it's a strange thing. Like, because I do see the importance of wanting to say, you know what, I am, I'm super gay and I'm out. And like, you need to know that. I see the value of that. But it also does feel like an almost like an accommodation that cis people don't suffer from is that like, okay, <clears throat> let me explain to you real carefully who I'm attracted to, who I get in relationships with and why. Because like, I need, I need you to understand me <laughs> and not see me as an illogical, threatening person who's very capricious about who they put their junk on. Like, don't find me confusing. I'm going to explain this in a way that will thoroughly confuse you. <laughs> so thank you for doing that for me. <laughs> but you're right. You're, you're right. The fatherhood thing is super interesting because it is definitely a binary that they're presenting here of a kind, right? Like, they're still saying there. <laughs> we do still have, you're either one of the two mostly. I think they're talking, and my, at this point, my vocabulary is going to break down. But I do feel like they're, they're trying to make a case that you do have a gender assignment and that's that's a thing like you got a dingus or you got the other dingus but then that shouldn't be a constraint for what society allows you to do but i do feel like the dingus uh, is still determined yeah it's like their justification for it's okay for a boy to like dolls because he's still a heterosexual man who will have children as opposed to like that's maybe so maybe he likes dolls 
just because maybe he likes dolls because he is gay maybe he likes dolls because he's a she you know what if it's not connected like what if yeah. what if your idea about what liking dolls means has absolutely nothing to to what that person likes yeah and it's like there's so there are so many options and they've they've sort of chosen and i, I mean, this might have even been a deliberate choice to choose like the most sort of like easily swallowed mainstream idea of like acceptability for this deviant behavior using so many air quotes here um but like it's also like well it it could have it it doesn't have to be connected at all yeah that's that's kind of the mind blower is i don't know the galaxy brain part of this is like what if you're the one you as the observer of this thing you find so strange what if you're the one who's attaching who's creating these sorts of attachments and necessary connections in a way that that person's not even thinking about which again mm-hmm. now is not so different from saying well just because you got a girl bottom you're going to play in the kitchen like it's not so different we're just talking on a, like a sort of a, a broader scale yeah it's a funny thing i'm gonna play the kid card here this is i don't know if you can receive that um that's a picture from i want to say two years ago three years ago my daughter on the right and her best friend um, and that's that's the LGP, LGBTQ plus parade that they have at the elementary school every year. Oh. And so there's posters there's posters up everywhere about how the SFUSD celebrates all of our differences. And uh, I mean, what do, do you call do you call a nine year old kid straight or other? It doesn't matter that they're little kids, but they all wear the same. Every class wears the same color. Of, of the rain, like, you know, in this case, you can see my kid's class was yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go out and they, and they do a parade and there's dancing and there's like the celebration and signs. And the, but the message that runs through all of it is like, uh, yeah, we're all part of this rainbow. Now, wow. I thought that was kind of cool. I look at that and I think about, you know, when I was her age then, I, it was 1975. I'm trying to imagine it being even okay to utter anything like those words. And now you talk about hegemony in the school. This is the school. And like, I'm saying these because like, I'm so happy to say that like, it's no, it's by no means a perfect time to be a kid or to be a person, but things, at least in dumb old San Francisco, things, things are a little different. There's not only is it not okay to be terrible to people, um, but it is, it is heavily encouraged that everybody push their boundaries a little bit into determining what it's okay to be, right? And I don't know, that just buoys me. It just lifts my heart to see that difference today where somebody like me was worried about whether Peter Brady got to win the contest on the Brady Bunch. And like now, there's just so much stuff that's not weird, that's not questionable and dangerous to these little kids. And I think they're not, they're everybody, they're, every little kid's different, but they they are growing up in an environment where it's no longer necessary to identify somebody's otherness and make them feel terrible about it. My kids on student council, and yesterday they uh, talked about how they're going to remove. They have a school like, like not a pledge of allegiance, but like the school affirmation <laughs> that they kind of do. <laughs> and they took out the word "smart," like saying "I am a smart person." They took that out because although that's a good message, they decide that was not part of the growth mindset and the idea that we all all have room for improvement all the time on all these different. It's like I, I feel like I, I'm watching a movie from the future when I see this, and like it's. It's so vastly different from what I was taught, encouraged, and then would mentally fight against. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Uh, And it's not about free to be you and me. But boy, is it different from 1972 now. 
I just, wow, I got to move to San Francisco, apparently. Because <laughs> it's like, what my, so I grew up in rural Maine, um, which is one of the whitest places in the country. And, and aging, isn't it like the, the oldest state now? Oh, yeah. I've got a podcast about this. Uh, <laughs> do you? Wait, the kind of, um, that's a side note. But I, I genuinely do have a narrative podcast called Setting the Stage. <laughs> White and old, land of lobsters. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about community theater, um, but it's also about like the rural rural Maine um, and what that means and those intersections. Um, and I mean, I graduated in 2014 um, and I do, I like, I personally know people who are working for um, like GSAs in my, the County that I grew up in and like transgender inclusive uh, policies in these schools. And I, they, these, especially the transgender inclusive policies are being actively fought by the community. Um, mm-hmm. And there's such a spectrum of like what is considered acceptable and normal um and and like my my hometown um and like is not the is by far not the worst um that there is in the country but it's certainly nowhere close to like your daughter's school and having a a school-wide pride parade and celebration of this kind of thing and I wouldn't want to say for a minute, because without too much OPSEC, I live in a very conservative part of San Francisco, if you, San Francisco proper. Like, I live in one of the easily most very conservative neighborhoods um, politically. It's a lot of uh, first, second, third generation immigrants from um, from East Asia. And in some cases, there's a lot of Irish people like that have been around forever. It's a pretty conservative neighborhood. But so, I mean, what I will say is I don't hear people loudly complaining and saying, well, you know, this teacher's aide is actually a girl but acts like a boy. Like, that's not okay. Like, I'm not aware of that coming up. But I, I – and I, I guess it is kind of a San Francisco thing. I don't know. I mean, people come here because they want to be able to, you know, walk to the grocery store and <laughs> not have so many hate crimes. <laughs> Maybe that's part of it. But – it's it's a feel it's a it's a feeling um in some ways where like i just i grew up uh in a world of fear of like fear of the things like like your folks back in not your folks but your people back in maine like okay stop a minute why do we not want the transgender thing happening why is that is it is it a threat are we scared of that like they want to get rid of that because why because if it continues what happens you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when you stop and you stop and really try to get down to like Occam's razor, like first principles, like why does that affect you? Why, why is that a thing for you? I have to imagine it's because you think its existence and definitely its growth is going to cause something bad to happen to you. And that bad thing is what? No, it's, it's think of the children. That's exactly what it is, is it's this fear mongering mm-hmm. of what are they going to do to our children? That they're going to either in the classic model – they are deviants who are going to assault our children, or at the very least, they're going to radicalize and inculcate them into this this strange um, sexual cult that they have. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Like they're going to recruit them? That's my basic understanding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's – I don't see that a lot. Um, <laughs> I see a lot of people who spend – 15, 30, 50 years fighting every impulse that tells them they'd love to be in that cult, but there's no way their life would be livable if they did. I see really quite the opposite of that. I see a lot of difficulty in in being different in public in mm-hmm. most places. 
oh, doesn't that just hurt your heart? Yeah. And so bringing it back, that is one mm-hmm. of the reasons why like this kind of children's media has always been like so important and remarkable when it happens because it mm-hmm. like if you can expose kids to this message of like whether on the 1970s level that like hey boys and girls should be allowed to do whatever they want regardless of like what sex they're assigned um or like our more sort of contemporary versions of like you should love and accept all people as human beings mm-hmm. um regardless of all of these other factors that we've grown to understand in our intersexual understanding of this and it's like when that kind of thing can be um exposed to kids like in this fun catchy music kind of way or like in our movies and in our, in our books like that makes a real difference it does and i I want to like I'm going to read across the grain a little bit here. Um, what you're describing, and I think it's a true thing, is that there is this. Gosh, how many times have you heard about people who don't want they want historically? We, we cannot let gay people be teachers in our schools. Why? Uh, because they're going to inculcate them into these values and probably molest them because we think that's what gay people do. Like right, and but like now where we are today. Whether it's people's uh, obsessive obsession with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, like, how cute she was in college and how mad that makes them. We talked about this on Dude by Friday, as you know. <laughs> Whether, but, like, the, the funny part now is, like, that, that used to be – that kind of attitude about how, how people act used to come down to what is this person's sexual valence and what does it mean to me? And how, how could I'm, – I'm, I'm trying – I'm throwing a really broad net here. But I think there is this thing about like I don't like the way these people make me think about sex, whether it's whether I'm attracted to AOC or whether I can't even – I can't even sustain the idea of a trans person using a bathroom that my daughter is using. And like – OK. But like I think we're at a point now where I've heard enough of that that it now mostly just comes across as incredibly creepy to me. And like an incessant need in a way that the normal person would never do with their coworkers unless they're a total creep. Why do you need to put everybody's junk on the line all the time? Why are we talking? Why are you so obsessed with sex? (laughs) Why are you so upset? And in this case, whether you're trying to basically sexualize a newborn, which is what they're pushing against in some ways, in some ways it's like, am I supposed to be attracted to this or not? And like, does that confuse me? And it's, I feel like this is a narrative that's going to keep coming up as more of us are thinking about this stuff, how, how deeply creepy it is, how much the people who are scared of this stuff, how much it says about them in some ways, that they are so obsessed with what, what anybody else is doing in their own private and public life it has nothing to do with them, but yet somehow becomes some kind of a psychic, emotional and existential threat to them, even though they've had zero contact with those people. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, isn't it, it's, it's gross. It's, it's gross and creepy to be this obsessed with people's genitals and what they do with them. It's so odd. Yeah, that's th- this goes back to what I was saying earlier about like my understanding of gay marriage evolving as I grew up. And I, because I, I think I'm going to try to explain this is that mm-hmm. I think there's the separation where like you are exposed to an idea of like, gay people should not be allowed to get married transgender people should not be allowed to publicly transition what like whatever it is and i think that if you are like a sort of an average person living in the world with with no exposure to those people then you can kind of think like 
even if you don't agree with it, you can be like, I kind of understand what this argument is against it. Um, and then you, you like go on. But then when you're at a point in your life where either like your understanding of it has evolved through like reading and learning, um, or when you have people in your life who you are close to and love um, who live these experiences, you get to the point where you're like, no, that's not a valid argument. That doesn't make any sense. Where, mm -hmm. How did you come to that argument? And how, why are you sharing it with other people like that? And what is your motivation there? Because you, you, you just come to realize that that is so ridiculous and that like the, the, the motivations behind it are not as sort of um, are not good faith in the way that they pretend they are. They're presented as like almost this abundance of caution thing. Like, well, we just need to make sure, let's be honest, that our tribe stays safe. And like, this feels foreign. And like, and again, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with how you, it doesn't have any impact on you, really, that you still would find the need to want to legislate against whatever is happening there. But I, I also think, I, I don't know, I, I'm trying to avoid the like, yeah, I have a daughter thing. But like, I think one thing you're onto, I like to think that I'm onto is like, it does, this is not the solution, but it is a bridge, is to help people understand that not only are we talking about people, but we're talking about people you know. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's a snarky thing that we on the coast say, but like, hey, you know, you already know gay people, dude. You just don't know you know them. <laughs> you know so many gay people. And you have no, you have no, you have no idea about that. And I think it helps to, the more people are exposed, whether it's again, intersectionally, I guess, like people who are different from you are different from you. They are not you. They have their own needs in the world that have nothing to do with you. So why do you need to get in on that? Like why, if you can appreciate the like, and you know, everybody's, everybody's got, not everybody, but a lot of people have, like you say, like a gay relative. They have somebody in their life, I mean, at least in Florida, like everybody has an aunt who's been living with this lady for a long time. <laughs> it's like very, very common. My best friend's um, aunt lives, I, I say aunt, my wife says aunt, Her his aunt lived with the same lady for 40, 30 years and they ran a school together and they had the same haircut and wore the same tops and basically <laughs> it was like an 80s poster for closeted lesbians And but we didn't talk about it, nobody talked about it, everybody knew what was going on but nobody talked about it. But certainly in that community, there are going to be people who are, quote unquote, against gay people without ever realizing that these two ladies that they, they are friends with would suffer under that. Like, I don't, is it that hard to imagine? Is it that hard to imagine why people would be happy to find people who, who are like them and supportive of them how they are? Like, that is, that's the kind, that's a free, free to you and me style message. It's so childlike, it's almost embarrassing. But like, is it possible that it could be equally important for other people to be the way they are as it is for you to be the way you are? Now, how do you make that? How do we make that okay for everybody to be like that? Are they really harming people? They're not. They're not harming people. I mean, not any more than anybody else is. So, yeah. like, why can't we? Why can't we experience a modicum of joy for people who got to be the person that they want to be? Is that really such a terrible thing? Like, could couldn't you go on and have a happy life doing whatever you do or the same life? I don't really care if you're happy or not, but <laughs> couldn't you go have the life you'd like to have? without having to scotch these people who felt entirely alone for their entire life until they found the weirdos like them on the island of misfit toys? Why can't we make that okay? Is it really that complicated? <sighs> it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated, but it's unfortunate that like people do still make it like that. And this, this is one of the things I found as well when I was 
when I was reading about Free to Be You and Me um, is that in 2014, there was an, basically an op-ed written about it, about just railing against it and how it emasculated men. You're kidding me. <gasps> send, me send me the link. I have to see this. Oh, it's in the New York Post, um, oh my as God. you can okay. imagine. And uh, that if you look up a picture of this guy, he's exactly who you think he is. Um, and it's just, it's not a very long article, but he just really hates this and he rails against it. And my favorite part of this article is at the end, he blames it for the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, my God. The, the, the closing line is, what? no wonder that the girls of the free-to-be generation would grow up to buy millions of copies of Fifty Shades of Grey. Forty years of gender re-education later, the only place they could find masculine men anymore was fiction. So the, the billionaire with the sex genes. <laughs> what does Justin call him? His dom genes? <laughs> the guy with his dom genes. Finally, a man we can understand who makes a woman sign a contract that she can be spanked. Finally, we've arrived. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's so wrong. It's not even right. What a very confusing idea. It's just like the whole article is, is incredibly nasty um, and makes me sad to read. But the, the, that last line is so absurd that it just like it almost brings me joy. It's that that weird. <laughs> it, it It is. And like you just wonder about the people. I mean, yeah, people think what they think. Uh, I think this is a little bit harmful. It's certainly a little bit uh, unkind. Um, but uh, boy, what must it be like to have to be around him all the time? Can you imagine like being married to that? Mm. No. It's just it's so very odd. I'm looking up uh, Mike Pence on Milan. Do you remember that? Mike Pence, Mike Pence, our vice president. Yeah, no, 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 I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he uh, used to be a columnist and a radio guy. Oof. And he has this <laughs> I can't find it right now. 1999 op-ed on Mulan and how it's <laughs> how Mulan is this um propaganda piece about women in the military. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember this and I blocked it out. Someday I'll make a man out of you. <laughs> Let's get down to business. Oh, what a great song. Oh, gosh. These guys are so worried. Everyone's so con- – they're so moist and worried. Everyone is so <laughs> concerned. What about my junk? Oh, oh my God. <sighs> you know, Quinn, it's going to end someday. At least we'll all find the sweet release of death. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a pretty common thing. I, I write some of that down to, well, let's be honest. I'm not going to front. Uh, some of that is like that's a clickbait thing, like for people who agree. Oh, yeah. Like there's a – do you listen to – you don't listen to Chapo, Trap House, do you? No. I'm no, a little they, familiar with it, but – Yeah, but they, 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 they do this running thing where they, they call it a reading series. But there's this one guy. What is his name? He's so terrible. And he writes these bizarre stories. In one case, he wrote about his friend whose wife was possessed and how he's trying to have her exercised because she – she, you know, obviously she's possessed by the devil because she's saying unkind things about her husband. And there's just these – people just go to the strangest lengths – to seem like a very thoughtful person about something that is beyond magical thinking. It's they, people make these connections that are so strained and bizarre in order to make a basic point about, I don't like people who are different from me because I think they're dangerous. It's just, it's just, <laughs> it's the oddest thing. Now Mike Pence is vice president. Milan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
It's propaganda. <laughs> propaganda. It's got Donny Osmond. Get it? Donny Osmond? Mormon? What? Huh? <laughs> I, can't, I can't even keep up anymore. Ah, uh, uh, well. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, would you would you recommend uh, Free to Be You and Me to a child in your life? Um, I think, yeah. I think I would play this for a kid. Um, and then, because I think that, like, at its most essential level, it's a series of catchy, well-produced children's songs with charming, positive messages. And, like, I don't think... I think that um, I think that even kids today would get something out of this. And then, like, as they grow up, I would get them into more and more advanced, like, gender study class conversations. Like, <clears throat> man, if I ever have kids, it's going to be very interesting. But um, <laughs> this will be, like, this will be, like, 101. <laughs> <laughs> this is called Fun Home. Sit down. Put on mm-hmm. these headphones. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I, I think, actually, um, the – so I got into this um, – however I got into it, however it appeared in my house. I was about seven, six or seven, I think, at the time. But I think, uh, actually, a good – if we're going to inculcate and uh, bring people into the cult of uh, equity, uh, I think a, a kid more like the age of even two or three, this is good for. This is very catchy two- or three-year-old kid music that mm-hmm. will grow with them a little bit. Maybe not for an 11 or 12-year-old. It's a little bit young. But I, I think this has, as you said, as we said, a lot of, like, Sesame Street qualities that little kids like. So yeah, yeah, it's it's very it's very like I could see like playing like patty cake toddler games, singing these songs and stuff like that. Yeah, what kind of what kind of um, musicals would you rec- like if you had to think about like recommending um, like musicals to kids between three and seven? Are there any non children musicals you think are good for little kids? Oh, that is. Hard question because I. It most, is a hard question. Most of the musicals I listen to are very adult. I would say um, some of them is like they'll see, like like now my daughter's into Mean Girls, which has some stuff that's probably a bit old for her. But I'm, there's a lot of them have swears and stuff like that. If that bothers you, there's a funny thing with little kids though. Where little kids, I, I I'm, I'm eventually I'm sure going to be talked out of this and feel terrible about my whole life. But in my experience, little kids have a way. If there's something that's that's weird or they don't understand, they kind of go right past it. They don't dwell on it like we do. It's it's us who gets anxious about it. But like, are, are there things like um, I don't know? This is probably a dumb question. But you enjoy musicals, musical theater. Like, what are the kinds of things you would want to get a little kid excited about? Yeah. Well, one one quick note about that is um, my parents. I think showed Must Rent for the first time when I was like twelve or thirteen, and they were like, "There are going to be what? things in here you don't understand, and we are not answering any questions." And I was like, <laughs> "I all right, that's going to become my official <laughs> policy." I love that. That was the thing is like they tried, they didn't show us things that we didn't think they could, we could handle. But sometimes there would be like, like there's a lot of stuff in Louisville when that I just didn't need to know about when I was thirteen, and they're like, yep. "You can enjoy what this is, and just you're not going to know yet. That's fine." And I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> that's that's a really good policy. So this is something that people have asked me before, and I'm always like, I got to think about that, and I never do. Um, one that comes to mind immediately because I've thought about this before is I think Kinky Boots is actually a great musical for kids for okay. a very similar kind of thing. Um, not like super young kids, but um, definitely I would say like your daughter's age um, because um, – and it's very similar kind of thing. It's like – it's a very digestible message of like um, acceptance and, and loving each other that's not like – that I think is extremely accessible to – 
to to people of all ages but it also like tells a very interesting story um and has good music and so i think that's that's a good one um there's probably a little bit of language in it i don't that kind of thing doesn't register for me unfortunately so i don't remember exactly but i i do remember thinking when i when i saw it that like this i think is a, a very accessible music musical for kids i wish it was easier to see staged musicals i subscribed to broadway hd for a while Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to watch stuff like Company and to watch like, oh, who's the woman from Bunheads who's so wonderful? Um, Sutton Foster? Yes, yes. She's got like a couple. She's so good. Her little like stage shows and stuff like that. But the app was such garbage. The app was so terrible. And the choices, like if you wanted to see Shakespeare plays, I guess it was good. But it was kind of a weird assortment for what they were charging. But it's so frustrating to me. And I, I am so new to a lot of this. Like I don't understand uh, – Quinn, why is there not a movie of Wicked? Doesn't that seem weird? It has been in production for a decade. It was announced so long ago, and it's I mean, still don't, like... don't people... Am I wrong? Don't people really like the Wicked? Like, that seems like a thing people... Aren't they, like, almost rent-like in their obsession for Wicked? Oh, God, people love Wicked. And they... But they, like, they announced that the movie was going to be made so long ago, and it's still just, like, this line on the... There's, there's a page on Playbill of all the upcoming movie musicals, which I visit somewhat frequently, and it's still just at the bottom of the page, like, on, <laughs> on the section of musicals without dates, and it's just, like, the Wicked musical is coming sometime... Like, that's just, it's so odd. It's so weird. Like, what is what is out there? Like, I had this period probably last year where, um, I mean, I'm not a pro or anything, but I got pretty into Les Mis, and my daughter got into it, and I, to some extent, my, my wife did, but we were just listening to it all the time, and I went deep. Like, I got, I got a couple DVDs, and, you know, was able to see, like, the anniversary show, 10th anniversary, 25th anniversary, but, like, you know... The movies I like the movie more than most people, but like it's just so strange to me like what, what ends up making it mm-hmm. on screen and not. Like yeah. I guess I get Sweeney Todd because that's a thing that like I guess Tim Burton wanted to do, but it just seems like there's these giant holes in terms of like people who are in New York and get to see shows eventually and then there's the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Like even trying to get Hamilton tickets to San Francisco is usually a pretty big deal. But, like, I don't know. It just seems so strange to me. I don't understand. There's The supply and demand seems so wildly off. Yeah. Man, well, one, I cannot wait for the In the Heights movie finally coming next year. Very excited for that. Um, and then my my other two thoughts on terms of, like, musicals for kids or, like, yeah. what I think I would recommend to your oh, daughter. Oh, yeah, bring it, bring it. Specifically in that age bracket would be um, Bring It On and Legally Blonde. Oh, but those are both but soundtracks in both of those cases, right? No, no, no. Like both of those, the both of, so they both started as movies, but they both have um, original yes. stage adaptations. And that you can watch? Yeah. So Legally Blonde was filmed for MTV, so you can watch that online. Um, oh, great. And it is a, a really great show. I'm sure it, ha- it has like some like risque jokes. No, no, it's in okay. It, but we listen like, to Mean Girls. Everything yeah, will be yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it it, I genuinely really love Legally Blonde. Um, and I think it's, and it has Christian Borrow in it and Annalie Ashford and like a, a very strong cast. Um, and then Bring It On the Musical is actually an original Bring It On story written by Tom Kitt and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lin-Manuel Miranda did a bunch of the music for it. Um, right, right, right. And I'm not sure if it's available online. I'm sure it's available on a truck somewhere. Um <laughs> And, but that is some of the best stuff out there is on cell phone cams. I hear there's a certain cell phone cam performance I've watched many, many times. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Anyways, uh, legally blonde and bring it on. I will, I will locate these because she fell hard for for Mean Girls, and that the movie and the uh, and the musical. 
Yeah, if she likes Mean Girls, I would say these two are like definitely the same kind of thing. Um, and I, Bring It On is not my favorite. It does have a couple songs that I really like, but Legally Bond especially like is one of my personal faves. I love it. I will do that. Well, okay. Well, so how I usually end these episodes is with something called the lightning round. Um, and it's not going to be totally applicable for this kind of um, concept album, but let's let's do what we can with it. Um, let's do it. So I'd ask you, first of all, what is your favorite song from this? Um, my favorite song from this today, as I sit here, it's either, um, I think it's, oh God, there's so many good songs in this. It's either Sisters and Brothers or, you know what, I'm going to say, you know what, I'm going to say uh, Helping. And some kind of help is the kind of help that helping's all about and some kind of help is the kind of help we all can do without okay i'm gonna say helping nice. today okay i'll ask you again in 10 minutes uh, okay. and then do you have a favorite line from this a favorite line i love the in, in this in that one in particular or in i i love the there's probably a greek term like a Greek rhetorical or dramatic term for this. But I love the da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da of this. The like, here's this thing, here's that thing. Here I say she, here I say he. I have this way of mixing it around and twisting things. So there's a lot of lines like that. Um, I, I want to say in... Oh, you know what? You know what I love? Uh, when I grow up, I'll be pretty. Like, making noise. Like making noise. And making faces. And making faces. And making friends like you. I love I love that Diana Ross. I love that reading of that line in When We Grew Up. Yeah, you won't. You probably only heard it once, but like, there's a line where she's talking about when we grew up. Like, so it's a song about like wondering what's going to happen to me. Am I going to be a nurse? Am I going to be a doctor? Am I going to be Doctor Dan or Nurse Nancy? <laughs> will the world let me be? And it's just talking about like I wonder what will be like when we grow up. Well, you know, will I be pretty? Will I be like this? I love songs like that. I, I love songs that are about pondering what things are going to be like for you in the future. And uh, I think it's a great performance. I love Diana Ross. I think it's a good performance. Yeah. Making yeah. noise, making faces, making friends like you. Yeah. That was one of my, that was my favorite songs when I listened to this. I thought it was really sweet. Okay. The normal question would be um, like your favorite character or who you would want to play, um, which okay. not really applicable for this. So I would ask like if you, if there was, if this was a variety show being performed, um, which song would you want to perform? Oh man. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, Let's see. It'd be fun to do ladies first, which is <laughs> eaten by the tiger. Um, um, who would I? I would probably want to do. What's the one with Harry Belafonte and her? Um, which song? Parents or people? Parents or people? I all I can say is I would like to do a duet with Marlo Thomas. Mm-hmm. One of the, one of the songs. I really like "Glad to Have a Friend Like You." Um, also, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, I'm not sure. You know, uh, if I could pull it off in my pan way, I'd be Marla Thomas. That's my favorite character. Love her. Yeah. Oh, man. That's easy. I mean, that's like saying you want to be Hamilton. Come on. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, that's, there's a reason why that's the good answer. Well, you know, Aaron Burr's got some good lines, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Lafayette. I mean, come on. There's no bad character in Hamilton. Anarchy? Anarchy? Ah, oh, anarchy. <laughs> okay, lightning okay. round. Um, 
And I guess we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but I guess if you were to put it as a concluding thought, um, who would you recommend listen to this? I think this would be this would be a good choice. Um, I think this would be good driving around in the car music for a kid who's still in the car seat age. So maybe a kid who's like even even two or three. I think this is the kind of music that might appeal to a very young child just melodically and rhythmically. You know, kids <laughs> kids respond well to rhythm. They like they like these little tunes. I would recommend I would recommend that. I think this is probably going to feel very dated and silly to our flossing tweens of today. <laughs> I would not give it to a kid my age. Um uh but yeah, that's what I would say. I would say this might be this might be a fun uh, what? A fun CD to give you know, this this might be a fun like uh, one of those too old for your kid right now, but like when a kid is born, uh, you could give this as a gift. I would say very young kids, yeah, probably. There you go. And then finally, um, if you were to combine this with another musical, what would you pick? Oh wow! Combine this with another musical. Um. Oh, you could probably have some gender bending fun with this so maybe uh, Hedwig ooh very interesting <laughs> well I'm just tossing it out there you know yeah no I can, I can kind of see that it's Hedwig for kids well it's, it's funny how many how many um, I'm realizing how many musicals that I enjoy um, might be of a certain style but then they'll like okay I, I, there's not too many examples of this but like you take a song like um, I think Wig in a Box Mm-hmm. In some ways, it reminds me a lot of uh, like "You'll Be Back" from Hamilton. I love when somebody throws in the like Beach Boys British Invasion style song. You know what I mean? Put up some makeup. Very much like it's like it's almost it's very much like a like a 1965 you know pop song. I love those kinds of songs. So I think that could play well with this, and you could rock some of these up. You know, you could make an angry inch out of uh, when we grow up. (laughs) Oh, man, the mashup we never knew we needed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Corner of the Sky. This is the time of year when we remind you about how we are part of the Incomparable Network and how you can support this podcast by becoming a member of the Incomparable. If you want, you can sign up for a monthly or an annual pledge by going to theincomparable.com slash members. You can actually choose as many shows as you want on the network to support and your donation will be distributed among us. So thank you for that. And if you choose to become a member, you get a ton of bonus stuff like the bootleg podcast where you can hear episodes of shows right when they're recorded. Not this one, sorry, but like the main show and the game show, lots of fun stuff like that. You get a members only community on Slack and you get exclusive bonus episodes. Tons of shows are doing bonus episodes for pledge seasons, including us. The official topic of that will be released next week and you'll see why next week. But there will be an episode up there in a few weeks that I'm really excited about. You can contribute at $5, $10, or $20 per month um, with annual equivalents to that. And if you're already a member, you could boost your pledge up to a higher level and get some special goodies in return. So if you'd like to support this show and get some really cool bonus stuff, again, go to theincomparable.com slash members. Thank you so much. If you don't have the money to support this show right now, I completely understand. You can also support us by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, recommending us on Overcast, or just giving us a follow on Twitter at COTS Podcast. Until next time, remember, it's okay to cry.
Even, you know, free to be the milkshake duck of 2019. <laughs>